Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. about uh, attention that I think exists in a number of different uh, expressions of Judaism uh, between the idea of individual and collective sin and atonement, between uh, the individual focus on, uh, on sin and atonement and the communal dimension of that. Uh, this tension is particularly marked, I think, within the Jewish tradition of martyrology, stories about Jewish martyrs. Um, and today, what I want to do is uh, explore the understanding of sin and atonement that at, are at the heart of one of the most significant expressions of uh, the Jewish martyr tradition, uh, a story, a narrative uh, called Asara Haruge Machut, the story of the 10 martyrs. Um, this narrative, as we'll see, developed in close connection to the synagogue liturgies for the fast day of the 9th of Av, uh, and especially for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement. And so before uh, we get into looking at the text of the Ten Martyrs, I wanted to say a few words uh, about sin and atonement within the Yom Kippur liturgy itself in order to give you a sense to exemplify the differences and tensions between the conceptions of sin and atonement that we see on the festival of Yom Kippur. Uh, there are at least three, but let's say three distinct moments in the celebration of the Yom Kippur liturgy uh, that um, give us different facets of the notion of sin uh, and atonement. Uh, first is the, the vidui, the confession, when we uh, stand in the synagogue and, uh, uh, and uh, list uh, possible sins for which we are taking responsibility. The second is the seder avodah, which is a dramatic reenactment of the sacrificial ritual for Yom Kippur that's described in Leviticus 16. And then the third is a penitential hymn, known as Ela Eskara, which is in fact a poetic version of the story of the Ten Martyrs. So I want to start just a brief discussion of the first two before we sort of unpack uh, the third. And uh, what I want to argue is that um, although there are th uh, these three moments in the liturgy have certain features in common, they differ fundamentally in how they view the relationship between the individual and the community. So just a few words about the vidui, um, and uh, hopefully for many of you this is familiar, just to give you a few of the examples of the types of things that are recited communally uh, in 
congregational worship on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, we say things like, and for the sins we have committed before you out of ignorance, by deliberate deceit, by, wrong, by wronging our neighbor, by folly of the mouth, in business, with haughty eyes, by effrontery, by levity, we have done violence, framed falsehood, have counseled evil, have failed in promise, have oppressed, have been stiff-necked, have done wickedly, have corrupted ourselves, have gone astray, and have led astray, and many, many more like this. Now, it's important um, that we imagine uh, the, this liturgical community that's reciting these confessions. This is a community of equals. Uh, the chazan, the prayer leader, does not have a particularly special status within this recitation. It's participatory. Uh, so in Leviticus 16, uh, the ritual for Yom Kippur is described. It's the priest who recites the confession uh, on behalf of the collect collective. But this uh, vicarious confession has been shifted to a participatory community, essentially, of equals. Uh, we use the first person plural, we, we have done all of these um, sins. But that we is balanced by uh, what I might call an individual perspective. Often uh, the vidui, the confession is said silently and then portions of it are said publicly. So we have the silent recitation that's done individually and also together a kind of audible public recitation. And then finally, one of the things that characterizes this part of the Yom Kippur service is I, would, I might call the present tense. Uh, we think about our past year. We might think about longer run patterns in our immediate lives. But we're thinking about ourselves in our present lives and in our communal lives. We're not thinking about um, eons ago and our ancestors. We're thinking about the things that we do in our, in our lives. This is quite different from the Seder Avodah. Uh, this is the uh, reenactment, the verbal reenactment of the Yom Kippur liturgy. Uh, and um, it's, it's a term that's used for a, a set of um, very sophisticated poetic liturgical compositions. There's not just one Seder Avodah. There are many of these that were composed over the generations. And the Seder Avodah is recited during the Musaf service uh, now. That wasn't always the case. Um, it was only in the Middle Ages that the Geonim confined this uh, recitation of the Seder Avodah only to the Musaf service as opposed to being repeated throughout the liturgy. So this is a very prominent portion of the liturgy in antiquity. And we have uh, very many of these that are preserved in manuscripts or in prayer books uh, from uh, late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. And of course, in some ways, this service reflects the profound transition that occurred in Judaism from a period in which the temple stood and in which the uh, priest and the priestly hierarchy oversaw the sacrifice of animals as well as plant matter as the primary way for human beings, the Jewish people, to communicate with their God and to set themselves uh, right with their God. We've in the post-temple period, we've moved into a post-temple situation. Um, and here we have uh, uh, a sacrificial rite that has been transformed into a liturgical performance. The words of this, that describe this uh, sacrificial act are themselves become the medium of communication. 
The Seder Avodah consists of three parts. First, we have an account of the creation of the world uh, that um, then tells the story of humanity leading from Adam and Eve up until the high priest Aaron. And then the third part, uh, after creation, human history, is a description of this high priestly ritual on Yom Kippur. So uh, this drama that's led by the prayer leader enacting in the body of the high priest is not a community of equals. The high priest is the central figure and the congregation is imagined as a kind of uh, voyeur. Um, there is an element of human participation through hearing the words and calling to the mind's eye the, the ritual, but the chazan in the guise of the high priest is at the center of the show. Uh, the Seder Avodah, uh, these compositions often compare the current congregation with the congregation that lived at the time of the temple. And it says, essentially, um, those people who lived at the time of the temple, uh, they merit a great blessing because they actually were witness to the sacrifices. We only hear about them. The ear is less than the eye. Uh, and so there's this real comparison between the present congregation and a kind of idealized ancient congregation from the time of the temple. Uh, there's no emphasis on individual sin. Uh, there's no, I would say, individual perspective. This is, the sins aren't personalized. This is uh, atonement for communal sin. Uh, and uh, it situates the present community in this long history of sin. One example, as we'll see in a moment, is uh, that um, when detailing the power of the high priest to atone for the sins of the people, for example, it says that the, uh, the kutonet, the jacket of the high priest that he wears on the Day of Atonement atones for the sins of Joseph's brothers who took his kutonet, um, his <coughs> coat of many colors, uh, uh, and dipped it in blood and brought it to their father uh, and thereby um, um, wronged their brother uh, tantamount almost to killing him. Uh, so the action of atonement is that the high priest is engaging in uh, and that the prayer leader is engaging in through describing this is something that recalls sins from very, very long ago from the ancestors. Um, so here we have at least two very different models. One, I think that we feel very comfortable with the, the vidui. And when I say we, I don't know exactly who I include in the we, but um, people who feel comfortable with the idea of individual responsibility, you reflect on yourself, you try to do better, you have a notion of sin that might be um, understood in ethical or psychological terms. We like to do this together in community, but the individual is present. The Seder Avodah is more uncomfortable. People know um, how to deal with it much less well. Um, commemorating sacrifices, an institution we're not really sure um, uh, was up to a form of religion that we want to see returned or come back. The idea of animal sacrifices is difficult for many of us. Um, and in any case, the horizon of sin is grand, um, almost cosmic, uh, going back 
to uh, the ancestors. So, f and I should say that in many congregations, the Seder Avodah is omitted, but if you went to a, a relatively traditional synagogue of many, many stripes and they omitted doing the confession, you would be like, I don't think this is the Yom Kippur service. That seems so fundamental to what people do in synagogue on Yom Kippur. The Seder Avodah um, could be sort of omitted and is in many congregations. So if that's a, a difficult framework to imagine for um, thinking about sin and atonement, the story of the 10 martyrs is perhaps even more challenging. Um, so the, t the story of the 10 martyrs, which we're going to look at closely in a moment, uh, is recited within the Avodah service. So it's adjacent to the celebration of uh, the, or the recitation of the ritual of Yom Kippur as laid out in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus 16. And in fact, uh, as again we'll see, developed in close proximity with uh, the synagogue liturgy and the Avodah. Um, the story of the 10 martyrs exists in dozens of forms, uh, many of them in poetry that were written for the Ninth of Av and for Yom Kippur, but also was one of the most popular story cycles in the Middle Ages. We have dozens of manuscripts of prose versions of this story that were um, circulating. Uh, almost no two of them are the same. So it has this quality of being reworked and expanded and, 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 and uh, told in many, many different ways. Um, very briefly want to say that uh, uh, there is virtually no sort of historical kernel to the story of the story of the 10 martyrs. I can say more about that, um, but we have a kind of history of the past uh, that um, is imagined um, in the course of um, a later period. Uh, um, so I just make clear that this is not a kind of historical representation of life under the early Roman Empire. And I think, as we're going to see, that the conception, in particular, of transgenerational sin, that sin is something that's carried from one generation to the next, that's born by the uh, descendants because of the actions of their ancestors, um, and that is what is required for that, is not um, direct atonement by the parties responsible, but vicariously by some other set of persons, that that notion, I think, will strike you perhaps as odd, or at least very interesting. And, um, and, and here I want to transition and look a little bit um, in order to highlight how um, uh, surprising the story of the Tim Martyrs can be, is to look very briefly at um, a couple of biblical texts that um, might have given um, uh, hearers or producers of the story of the Ten Martyrs pause when um, telling stories uh, that work this way. Um, in the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus and in uh, the reiteration um, in Deuteronomy 5, uh, we do learn that God is, someone, is, a, is a deity that... Um, holds uh, children responsible for the sins of their parents. 
It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's, uh, it says, For I, the Lord your God, and here I'm on the first um, passage in the, in the handout, For I, the Lord your God, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You'll notice when in the 13 attributes that are said um, repeatedly, uh, also in Yom Kippur and many other settings, um, uh, it doesn't sort of um, go on to say, uh, it cuts off with this idea of no se avon on to the next generations. We sort of, uh, that's actually expurgated in the liturgical version. Of this. So already the liturgy we know is a little uncomfortable with this idea that the children are going to bear um, the uh, wrath of God for um, the sins uh, of uh, their great-grandparents, or grandparents and great-grandparents. Um, although the version of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy does repeat this, we start to hear in Deuteronomy through its um, revision of earlier um, biblical law and norms, uh, questions about whether this um, should be in place. So later in Deuteronomy, uh, we hear, um, this is the second passage, parents shall not be put to death for children, nor children be put to death for parents. A person shall be put to death only for their own crime. Okay? And very interestingly, in a couple of prophets who are writing probably not long after the book of Deuteronomy is itself uh, put together in this process of grappling with um, older sources that make up the first four books of the Torah and the creation of something like Deuteronomy, probably not exactly in the form that we have it. Um, but in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we have two very striking passages that also uh, challenge us to reflect on this notion that um, children will bear the burden of the sins of their ancestors. Um, Jeremiah says in chapter 31, in those days they shall no longer say parents have eaten sour grapes and children's teeth are blunted, but everyone shall die for his own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be blunted. So there's actually this almost sense in Jeremiah and it's repeated in Ezekiel. Um, there's a proverb, this proverb shall no longer be current among you in Israel. There's a sense both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that there was a norm in the past and it's being rejected. It's very interesting. We actually have the, the language of um, uh, that's, that was a message that actually God doesn't stand by. It's not really clear, has God changed God's mind um, or, uh, or was that view wrong in the first place and why was it enunciated in other parts of the Hebrew Bible? But in any case, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel had the sense that um, it'll no longer be the case that um, children will be responsible for their parents' sins. The life of the parent and the life of the child are both mine. It is only the person who sins that shall die, says Ezekiel. Okay, so against this background, which um, would have been in play for, for, for biblically literate Jews in late antiquity and into the Middle Ages and beyond, uh, I think it's important to kind of keep those um, uh, voices um, in our heads. And I think, in fact, that probably is the norm that most people would associate with the notion of, 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 of sin and punishment, um, that people are not going to be executed for the sins of somebody else. Okay, 
Well, so let's step aside from that set of voices and, and try to kind of look uh, and trace out the, um, the uh, um, development of a very different strand of thinking about uh, sin and atonement. In uh, a second temple work known as the Book of Jubilees, this is on the bottom of uh, the first page, which was written in Hebrew uh, in Palestine in, in the second century um, and is part of the Ethiopic canon um, and fragments of it were uh, discovered at, in Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know that this isn't a kind of just a later composition but actually existed um, in uh, uh, the second temple period. Um, we have an account uh, of the story of Joseph, and I just bring one passage here. Here is what Jubilees relates. Jacob's sons slaughtered a he-goat, stained Joseph's clothing by dipping it in its blood, and sent it to their father Jacob on the 10th of the seventh month. Okay, so after the brothers have sold or, or, or uh, Joseph into slavery, they take his coat, and um, they send it to their father, and it happens to be that it is on the, on the tenth day of the seventh month, which if you begin the year with Nisan in Passover, then the seventh month is Tishrei, uh, which is the beginning, which is the um, annual uh, celebration of the new year uh, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So the tenth day of the seventh month is the tenth day of Tishrei, which is the day of Yom Kippur. He mourned all that night because they had brought it to him in the evening. Jacob continued mourning Joseph for one year and was not comforted, but said, may I go down to the grave mourning for my son. For this reason, it has been ordained regarding the Israelites that they should be distressed on the 10th of the seventh month, on the day when the news which made him lament Joseph reached his father Jacob, in order to make atonement for themselves on it with a kid on the 10th of the seventh month, once a year for their sins. So this is actually a story that, according to Jubilees, gives us an account of the, we call the etiology, the cause for coming into existence of uh, the holiday of Yom Kippur. What, what is Yom Kippur? According to Jubilees, at essence, it is the day in which Jacob m begins to mourn for his son Joseph, thinking that he has died. And um, the sacrifice of that day is part of atonement for that crime. For they had saddened their father's feelings of affection for his son Joseph. This day has been ordained so that they may be saddened on it for their sins, all their transgressions and their errors, so they may purify themselves on this day once a year. So Yom Kippur is, uh, at essence, a uh, commemoration of the Day of Atonement. Okay, so thus far we haven't heard much about martyrs. Um, and in fact, uh, the uh, early Yom Kippur traditions of Leviticus 16 um, and Jubilees uh, and its conception of Yom Kippur in no way tie the day to those who are executed by some oppressive government um, uh, um, for their commitment to Judaism or to the Jewish law, right? Um, and if we look at um, early rabbinic literature, uh, and its understanding of the rabbinic martyrs. And now we're shifting here um, into the second and third century from out of the second temple period and the book of Jubilees and we're moving forward a few hundred years 
and we're going to move uh, to look at traditions surrounding um, a set of rabbis who were said to have been executed at some point by the Romans. Um, most of these uh, figures seem to have lived in the first half of the second century. That would have been the period uh, not of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, but during the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, ongoing um, uh, revolts against Roman rule uh, in Palestine. Um, and so there's a set of traditions that we find already in some of the earliest rabbinic documents that tell stories about certain rabbis who are executed um, under a range of circumstances for publicly teaching or for engaging in um, other kinds of Jewish activities um, and are made an example of, or um, at least that's what the tradition uh, relates. So one of the earliest of these uh, martyrologies or uh, rabbinic martyr texts is found in uh, a, an early rabbinic text known as the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael. Um, it's a Tanaitic uh, midrashic work, perhaps from around the third century. Um, and here we um, have the following story. It's tied to uh, a verse in Exodus 22:22. Mechilta Rabbi Ishmael is a um, verse by verse commentary on the book of Exodus from Exodus 12 forward. Um, and in Exodus 22:22, we have the following 21:22, Kol Amanavi Atom Al Te'anun, do not um, cause suffering to the widow and the orphan. Im Aneta Aneoto, Ki Im Tsaoki Tsak Elai, Shamo Eshma Tsakato. And if you do oppress them, the widow and the orphan, and uh, they call out to me, I will hear their cry, and I will be angry, and I will kill you by the sword. That says, uh, that's what the verse in Exodus 22, uh, 22, 21, 22 says. So about this verse, the Mechilta brings the following teaching. Why does the verse repeat the form aneta ane? This is a regular biblical form, but the rabbis um, often used it as a, uh, a hook or a peg or a, an irritant with which to teach something because in rabbinic Hebrew you wouldn't repeat the same root twice in order to give emphasis. So if you do oppress them, im anet ane, why twice? Whether by a severe affliction or a minor affliction, uh, that is, um, you might have thought that it was only by a severe affliction. So it said it twice in order to tell you that it could be both a severe affliction or even a minor affliction against the orphan and the widow. Another interpretation, if you do oppress them, this would indicate that one is not liable for oppressing another, to orphan and a widow, uh, until that person oppresses and then does it again. So it says it twice because the first time, okay. But if you persist in your actions, it says on the second time and thereon, if you repeat the act, then God will hear. Okay, so then we hear a story. When Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Shimon were being led out for execution. They don't tell us the circumstances, but apparently they're about to be executed. Rabbi Shimon said to Rabbi Ishmael, my master, my heart aches because I do not know why I am to be executed. 
And Rabbi Ishmael replied to Rabbi Shimon, Perhaps a man once came to you for judgment or for consultation, and you kept him waiting while you drank something, or took off your sandal, or folded your talit. And did not this Torah say, if you do oppress them, whether it is for severe oppression or a minor oppression, echad inui mirubav, echad inui muat. So he says, you have comforted me, my master. So why, why is Rabbi uh, Shimon comforted? Apparently because um, he's not being punished for having lived a bad life. He's not being punished for some grave sin. In fact, he's being punished precisely because his sin is so small, it's so little. He kept somebody waiting, um, a, an orphan or a widow, somebody who needed a, a, a consult. It was so small. Otherwise, he pretty much had lived a perfect life. And there are many rabbinic teachings that um, suggest that the righteous are actually destined to suffer in this world so that they'll be done with their suffering and then the next world they'll have a perfect um, existence, whereas often there are wicked people who don't suffer in this world, and we think, why is that? Um, well, the idea is that they will have their comeuppance in uh, uh, the next world. So here is a story, and what I want you to take away from this story for our purposes is that there is nothing in this text that would suggest that the rabbis are thinking about execution as for uh, being a martyr, as a martyr, as being tied to um, atoning for somebody else's guilt, um, or even to some kind of severe crime. If anything, they're minimizing the martyr's uh, um, sinfulness to such a small degree. These martyrs are actually righteous, near-perfect people who maybe kept somebody waiting because they were taking off their sandals. Um, and that was as bad as it got. And that's actually a great comfort to them. So this view of martyrdom, not as punishment for individual sin, but precisely as a sign of one's own righteousness. Your sin is very, very small, at least according to this story. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I bring this text because it actually uh, stands as one of the building blocks for the story of the Ten Martyrs, which we're going to turn to now at long last. Um, uh, and in between this second and third century composition and the story of the Ten Martyrs, which um, developed perhaps 300 years later, sometime in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century. It's very hard to say exactly and in what forms. Um, the authors, the writers, the storytellers who put together the story of Ten Martyrs partly built on this story of the, of the executions of Rabbi Ishmael and a figure that they'll call Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, who's associated with or linked with identified with Rabbi Shimon. So they take this text, and it, this text evolves and evolves and gets expanded. And at some point, it gets used as the basic building block for the story of the Ten Martyrs. Um, and uh, again, I brought it, this early Mechilta text, precisely to show you how strange the story of the Ten Martyrs and how surprising it is. So now if we turn to the story of the Ten Martyrs, um, and this is 
on the middle of page two, and I've brought quite a lot of text, so we're not going to be able to, to read it in its entirety. Um, but I want to focus on uh, what I would call the frame narrative, the basic uh, frame, the narrative framework that explains what's happening in the rest of the text. It sets up the narrative and I would also say theological framework for the story. Um, so if we begin on the second paragraph, the first paragraph uh, we can um, maybe look at later, but um, it, it's, I think I want to focus on the second paragraph. Um, we hear a story about a Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor is studying Torah. Apparently, as the first paragraph tells us, the, the Roman emperor has been taught Torah by the sages themselves. Um, but, and we can see that that turns out to be a, um, a fateful decision to teach the Torah to the other nations. So I'll read it. Thereupon, the Holy One, blessed be he, set it in the mind of the Roman emperor to study the Torah of Moses directly from the sages and the elders. The emperor began with the book of Genesis, and he studied it until he reached a chapter in Exodus that begins, and these are the rules. From Exodus 21. And then within that chapter, he gets to the verse that says as follows. He who kidnaps a man, whether he has sold him or is still holding him, shall be put to death. Vigonev ish umecharo nimsa biado mochumat. Exodus 21.16. So he gets to this verse, and he immediately ordered his palace to be filled with shoes. Um, apparently, uh, um, this is... Uh, uh, linked to an idea that um, there's punishment for those who have uh, sold for silver um, the just and the needy. Um, uh, the just and the needy for a pair of sandals. So um, this is evoking some kind of sale of the just and the needy for some gain. And he summoned the 10 foremost sages of Israel they came before him and he seated them upon thrones of gold and said, there's a grave matter of law about which I must question you. Tell me the law, only the law and the truth. Speak, the sages said. If a man has kidnapped one of his brothers from the children of Israel and treated him cruelly and sold him, the emperor asked, what is the law concerning that man? According to the Torah, the sages answered, that man must surely die, since they know Exodus 21, 16. If so, the emperor said, you are guilty of death. Tell us why? He, they asked, because of Joseph. The emperor answered, whom his brothers kidnapped and sold. If his brothers were still alive, I would judge them. Since they are not, you will bear the sin of your ancestors. The sages beseech the emperor, grant us three days reprieve. If we can find a merit by which to acquit ourselves, then good. If we can't, do as you wish. They agreed upon this. So the story starts with an emperor who is studying the Torah and reads the story of Joseph and then later on reads the law that says if you kidnap someone, then you have to face capital, it's a capital crime. Uh, and he knows that the, sons of, uh, that the other 10 sons of Jacob, the progenitors of the tribes of Israel, were not executed, were not held responsible. In fact, they are the great ancestors of the Jewish people, um, that all the Jewish people are the descendants of these kidnappers. And so there's a sin that's 
right from the start of the Jewish people. It's a kind of primordial sin, an original sin, if you will, that starts right with the beginning of the Jewish people, and it has gone unatoned, and it needs to be atoned by a much later generation. So uh, because the text goes on very long, I'm going to summarize. Um, the rabbis themselves are as surprised by this as we are sitting in this room, and they say, I can't accept this. Um, we have to find out whether this is in fact the will of God. And so they elect one of them, in this case Rabbi Ishmael, which we, who we met in the previous text, and they say, why don't you go up to heaven? Um, so he goes up to heaven and in order to find out if this is what God wants. And it, then it gets really very, very strange because Rabbi Ishmael, um, it turns out, is not a normal person. Uh, he can go to heaven because his parents conceived him in such purity and righteousness and in part through the help of an angel, Metatron, who comes down to help his poor aging mother, who has not yet had a, a child who has lived, to have this great child. And I'll just, this is the middle of page three. Um, she says, okay, we need to even be more stringent in our practice of purity associated with um, menstrual impurity and the process uh, of, of purification for that. And um, when she has shown that she's so committed to self-purification, God says to the great angel Metatron, it's the middle of the page, descend and stand before that righteous woman and tell her that tonight she will become pregnant with a son and his name will be Rabbi Ishmael. Metatron, the angel, straightway descended in the form of a human being. He clothed and adorned himself and stood at the entrance of the ritual bath. She emerged, saw him, went home and became pregnant that very night with Rabbi Ishmael. His form was like the beauty of the form of Metatron so that every time that Rabbi Ishmael wished to ascend to the heavens, he would pronounce the divine name and ascend, and Metatron would tell him anything he wanted. So he's not just a normal rabbi. He is an extraordinary rabbi who can go to heaven and looks exactly like this remarkable angel who's very close to God. Um, and so uh, uh, Metatron tells him that... Um, in fact, it's true that he heard from God from behind the great curtain in heaven that the ten sages are to be handed over to the wicked kingdom to be executed. And Rabbi Ishmael says, why? And it turns out exactly what the Roman emperor had learned from the Torah, which is this, in fact, that's true. The ten progenitors of the tribes of Israel were guilty of kidnap, should have been executed, were not, in order to allow the Jewish people to come into existence, but that their, their debt, their sin, has been rumbling through history all along down to the present day. Um, and, uh, and Rabbi Ishmael is just horrified, has the Holy One blessed be he not found someone to redeem the blood of Joseph, as if the blood of Joseph is crying out and still needs to be redeemed. And Metatron says, nope, he has not found any like you until this day. So if that doesn't put a point on it enough, Rabbi Ishmael then takes a little tour of heaven. We're on page four. And Rabbi Ishmael uh, walks around. And what does he see? He actually sees an, an altar, a sacrificial altar in heaven. 
and he says, what, what is this? And Metatron, who's his guide, his angelic guide in heaven, says, yes, uh, everything that exists below exists above, just as it was an altar on earth, there's an altar in heaven. And Rabbi Shmuel says, what do you sacrifice on this altar? I mean, there aren't any cows or rams or sheep in heaven, are there? And he says, we sacrifice the souls of the righteous upon this altar. And Rabbi Shmuel says, now I've heard something that I've never heard before. So in heaven, there is an actual sacrificial altar, and the souls of these martyrs will be sacrificed as atonement for this grave sin. And this is, so this is the basic setup. What we then get is a story of 10 rabbinic sages who are executed, the different stories if you count them all up, there's at least 20 rabbis who get executed in different versions of the text, but it's always these 10 who are atoning for the 10 um, brothers of Joseph. And, uh, and many of the stories have this theme, which is this exacting our blood uh, from the, the Roman emperor exacts the blood from the rabbis for this ancestral sin. Uh, and... Um, uh, and I've given you some examples. Um, in, and then the final end of the text uh, tells us that the goal of these martyrdoms is so that their merit may endure for Israel for generations to come. What does this mean? It means that if the beginning of Jewish history of the tribes of Israel, of the people of Israel, was in part um, brought out of blood and conflict between brothers, uh, the, the shedding of, of blood, even if it was metaphorical, in the sense that it was an animal's blood and Joseph, in fact, did live, this act of kidnapping. And, the, say, the middle part of Jewish history, from the perspective of the Ten Martyrs, is marked by the execution of these ten sages to atone for the sin of the tribes of Joseph then the end of Jewish history will be that God will remember the martyrs. God will uh, think about their, uh, their great suffering. And there are um, passages not part of the Ten Martyrs that I think are related, in which God literally has um, this royal robe. It's called this porphyrion. And why is it red? It's because it's soaked in the blood of the martyrs. And when it's time for the people of Israel to be redeemed, God will look and say, yes, the martyrs have died, and I will redeem them from their oppressors. So um, Rome itself, or whatever we imagine Rome to be, um, in the, this period it was almost certainly Christian Rome, would be um, held accountable for the role that it's, it played. Although it was a necessary role, it atoned for the sins of Joseph's brothers. Uh, they themselves now have blood on their hands, and... Um, the people of Israel will rise up and throw off the yoke of their oppressors, and that will bring about the great redemption of the Jewish people. So the blood of Joseph's brothers, the blood of the martyrs, weaves its way through Jewish history from its beginning to some sort of messianic end. Um, and this is the conception of sin and atonement that we are invoking when... Um, uh, for those who say the martyrology on various liturgical occasions, especially on Yom Kippur, um, and uh, love to hear questions. Yes. Yeah. A, a couple of things. Um, 
Mr. Marjit, that you brought it here. Where do we find that? Is that a Talmud or? No, it's not in the Talmud. And it, uh, it's, so I brought the uh, wonderful edition by Gottfried Reig, uh, who um, put it together um, with, you know, in synoptic form. Um, and uh, this is, uh, I couldn't have done the work that I did without Reig's uh, edition. Um, so it, as a narrative, can be found either in pute, in poetic forms, um, in a very wide range of um, different pew team from the fifth century through into the Middle Ages and beyond. And uh, um, an Israeli, um, not an academic scholar, but an Israeli scholar through uh, Mossad Harav Cook published a collection of these pew team, um, which I can give you the reference for, um, where he collected a lot of these together. Um, this uh, is um, from medieval manuscripts. Uh, from the 11th to 14th century, mostly. Um, and it was collected as part of um, uh, a whole different sets of types of manuscripts, uh, Jewish narrative traditions, but it's never part of the Talmud. And in fact, uh, um, I would say that its conception of rabbinic martyrology is, is quite at odds with what we find in rabbinic sources. I gave you one example, which is the one from the Mechilta, where it's very, uh, it's very different. But if you look, yeah, okay. yeah, uh, that's, um, um, yeah, on the second page. Uh, but um, uh, um, okay. in the Talmudim, you have individual stories or pairs like Rabbi Ishmael and um, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Um, and then in the Bavli, you have a couple of clusters, but they never had this notion that there were 10 murders. Um, and we begin to see that notion in the Babylonian Talmud, but the idea of collecting a story of 10 murders not, is not anything that classical rabbinic texts do or really know about um, until the early Middle Ages. Um, so I think it's a separate tradition, but the, the people who put together the, this set of works, they know rabbinic literature. They know the rabbis, they value the rabbis, they tell um, versions of the stories, the individual martyr stories that are found in rabbinic literature. So they're mining rabbinic literature for, um, uh, to tell a story with a theology of sin and atonement that's remarkably different from what classical rabbinic literature finds. And so um, you know, one of the things that makes me most, uh, most intrigued me about this is the way that the cycle of stories is not rabbinic, but it's not not rabbinic. It uh, has rabbis as its heroes, but it's, uh, its theology and literary structure is, is not rabbinic. And it probably represents, I think, a period of development when rabbinic, when the rabbis are beginning to have a certain kind of um, authority, but there are people who are interested in doing with their stories very, very different things, especially in the context of Christian Palestine in the fifth to eighth century. So would you say then that this, um, this might be a Jewish sect or something that, or is it, or is it just in the general canon of like rabbinic or like PU literature? Or right, so? exactly. Or is it, that, is, is it connected to a, 
roof or, or I, th I think that we can locate it in Palestine. I oh. think we can, um, uh, and clearly, insofar as these rabbis are the heroic martyrs, there's something rabbinic about it. Um, um, and uh, the answer is I don't have a clear, simple answer. It's that point, I think, where um, synagogue Judaism and rabbinic Judaism are interacting, um, and we don't very well understand uh, what that social and cultural context was. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and that's, and I think it's impossible to answer that question without, first of all, um, you know, accepting that there was this incredible diversity of Jewish subcultures in Palestine and beyond, um, and that there was some process of interaction between uh, more classical rabbinic forms of Judaism and many, for lack of a better word, non-rabbinic forms of Judaism in interaction. Yes? I have two questions. I read this um, for some work I was doing. This is Rabbinic Fantasies, which I bet you have memorized. It's yes. such a super book. Yeah. And I have, um, so two questions. One specifically regarding the way the story is told here. Because I was looking for, and I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm out of luck, um, any kind of commentary on the daughter of the emperor who wants Rabbi Ishmael's face. Because I think that's extremely interesting. Now, apparently that's not part of every no. recounting of this, but it's a very strong and amazing detail. Like, and what did she? She wants from the emperor, she wants the face of Rabbi Ishmael when he dies. The face and not the head. No, the face. His face. And um, apparently he doesn't start to weep until his face is cut away and he has no place to put his tefillin. His tefillin, which I, mean, I think this is such a, a strange story. And of course, it reminds me later of um, <laughs> the head of John the Baptist. I mean, I think this is inevitable. Um, images of Mary Magdalene, who contemplates, of course, Vanitas and so forth. But my question is, because I don't speak Hebrew, can you tell me where I can, I, I can't find anything about her. Is this just a one-off? And then my second question well, is, how much of this do you think is a, I mean, these, these martyrologies is a result of the influence of the extreme Christian devotion to martyrology, that one minute you're in the lion's mouth and the next you're in heaven. I mean, they, they, they did live <laughs> next to each other. I mean, I think there's some cross-cultural, if you want to call it contamination. I'm, I, I'm just curious if, as the, the Christians put so much emphasis on this, that the church itself had to say, oh, stop. Quit going, throwing yourselves off cliffs and things. So those are the two questions. Any more about the emperor's daughter? I have so much to say about the emperor's daughter. I can send yeah, you yeah, some, yeah. yes. Well, yeah, in English. In, in, no, in, in English. I'm happy to share. Uh, is this an amazing figure? Yeah, it's like one of the greatest details. So I think Rabbi Ishmael's face is, inc is extremely important um, because um, it's one of the things that ties what I would call his biography together. Right. So we, we now, I, I gave you the section where, where how beautiful he is. And he's beautiful because he looks like an angel. That angel... Um, Metatron, in some versions, you know, is often associated with God's own face. 
So Rabbi Ishmael literally has this, you know, he's one of the most beautiful um, figures in all of human history going back to Adam. Um, he has a face of an angel. The angel, when he goes to heaven, recognizes him. Oh, yes, uh, yeah, God told me that he has, you know, a creature just like you on earth. Um, then it's no coincidence that his execution is precisely the removal of his face. Um, and uh, they remove his face. And, uh, and of course, the story of the daughter who says, you know, I, I, I think I'm in love with Rabbi Ishmael. He's so beautiful. And the, and the emperor says, well, I can't not kill him, but I can give you his face. Um, so she is exactly like, you know, Salome and, and John the Baptist. But what's really interesting here is that closer than John the Baptist are the traditions about the face of Christ uh, that... Yeah, the very icon or the mandilion in, right. in the Greek tradition, which is the cloth with which um, Christ wiped his face when he was um, on the Via Dolorosa and being brought to crucifixion. So there's a kind of imprinting of a cloth, and there are stories about people who actually put on the mandilion and look like uh, have the face of Christ and it and its heels. So Rabbi Shmuel's face then. In some versions of the story, again, which I, I didn't bring in, I don't think it's in Stern's rabbinic fantasies, there's a tradition that's actually brought from the Babylonian Talmud in which Rabbi Ishmael's face is used. It says, the Romans keep Rabbi Ishmael's face in their archive, and they bring it out once every 70 years, and they parade through the streets with it, um, uh, and uh, they put it on a Jew, um, and then uh, 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 they have someone ride on his back, and, and he sort of limps along. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy passage. Uh, and, and, um, and it says, well, they think that they're celebrating their victory, um, but woe to those who oppress us now um, when, you know, uh, um, when the Tables are reversed, essentially, and they're uh, and they're punished. Does this also have to do with the image of the of Torah, if I'm right about this, being caught in the tower? The, this idea of the pursuit of like courtly love, uh -huh. the Torah in the tower, the maiden in the tower. The maiden in the if tower. what she's after is righteousness, and she might not even know it, but your comment about right. But in the Zohar, yes. in the Zohar passages where you have, which I think is probably the 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 main place where we really have that fully developed, this this maiden without eyes in the tower. Um, yeah, she, she's a much more sympathetic figure, whereas uh, you know this figure is but is. But longing to bring the face of God closer to her. I mean, wouldn't that be on a on a, a meta sense? Maybe the bringing together, finally the gathering in. Could it be read like that? Perhaps. I'm not a teenager, I'm not a rabbi. I'm no, no. I'm, I I just I just think that the that the 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 the. the cruelty uh -huh. of her desire for his beauty, which is like um, can't distinguish between a living person right. and, and, and the face that's been turned into a death mask right. is, yeah. is, you know, is, is, yeah. is uh, worth yeah. drawing that distinction. But um, I, I do think that, um, and in some versions of the story, you know, um, uh, Rabbi Ishmael is said to be as handsome as Joseph. Joseph was also handsome. So he's in this lineage of beautiful men who provoke some sort of illicit desire. Um, so I, so I think that, so I think that, um, you know, 
I guess what I want to say about that is, yes, I think that there's no question that the story of the Ten Martyrs grows up in a Byzantine, um, Eastern uh, 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 world in which um, relics and icons are very, very central to forms of piety. The story seems to be saying, um, we, we have this even better than you do. There's a competitive nature to the story. Um, find you have your story of, you know, Christ and the martyrs, Christ and the saints, well, we have, we have ours. Uh, and in fact, your understanding of the story, history of redemption and what these martyrs are doing, you have it all wrong. Uh, the Roman emperor, even though it doesn't say he's Christian, he is a Roman emperor who studies Torah. So I think implicitly, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Christian Roman emperor. Um, so that gets, I think, back to, to, to Rabbi Steinkoken's um, question, which is, so who are these people? Who put together this story? Where do we fit them into our understanding of uh, the map of Judaism vis-a-vis -vis what's rabbinic, what's what's outside the rabbinic movement? And I think it it, it points to first of all how little we know, um, uh, uh, and also how we don't have a shape of that landscape. Um, but I think it it's reminiscent. I think of some of the material I'm going to be talking about tonight, where we also have in the form of synagogue mosaics material that also weren't fathomed by scholars reading rabbinic literature, but there it is. And it has many of these same features. I'm, I'm resistant to calling it Christian in this, you know, because I think that's very easy to kind of be like, okay, well, that's this sort of strange form. I think this was like the dominant form of Judaism um, in the sixth and seventh century. It was a synagogue-based Judaism that was in the process of rabbinizing, um, that was um, deeply imprinted by its Christian context, um, and um, and they fully uh, were able to articulate a very surprising notion of ancestral sin and atonement um, that uh, makes it, as it were, into the the archive and into the liturgy. And the fact that you know I'm always sad when I um, go to a synagogue where not just the Ten Martyrs, but the Avodah has been expurgated because I find that this is the difficult material that's sort of harder for us, but also incredibly um, thought-provoking about um, you know, the range of Jewish expressions. Can I ask uh, two? I don't know if I'm allowed. What, take one more? I'll take one more question uh, for the sake okay. of time. Well, the, the one, one of the things that I find, I find curious is if it always refers to the story of Joseph and in, in juxtaposition or contrast to the Pasuk um, Gunevish. Yeah. Because, you know, it says Gunevish umichro nimsabeyado Mutuma. So, like, um, if, if you have kidnapped a person and he's, and he's found with him, right, um, then you shall put to death. Right, so you would expect the rabbinic source actually, you know, the rabbis might have argued here, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing is also in terms of thinking of atonement, you know, Judaism, we say if, if there is atonement or reconciliation if you have, if the person forgives you. Mm -hmm. And Joseph forgave his brothers. So are there any, uh, so, so I mean, those are just things that's fascinating yeah. how this doesn't even come up yeah. in this story. And I was wondering if there's other versions. Where there are other, some of the other early Pute versions, 
um, are not pegged to the ten martyrs, mm -hmm. uh, to the to the ten brothers, and have other organizing structures. So that's something that um, uh, is interesting. Uh, there are examples of medieval readers of this cycle who raise exactly the kind of objections that you're raising because mm -hmm. they don't like it. Um, uh, um, and it's, they, they really struggle with it. Um, and they try to um, explain why the story couldn't possibly um, be normative. Or, uh, so there are readers who, who are frustrated by the selection or the not paying attention to, say, the end of the story um, with the forgiveness. Um, but the, the versions, that, most of the versions, so the vast majority of versions that we have um, do not bring Joseph's, the rest of Joseph's story into it whatsoever. It's this very isolated sin. It's not part of any larger, uh, and, and the Joseph element, they could have it recurs. You know, he, Rabbi Shmuel is as beautiful as Joseph. He has a very Joseph-like relationship to the emperor's daughter. It's again and again. It's not that they're not drawing on the Joseph story. Mm -hmm. They just don't. They're not interested in sort of pulling out the rug from under this grand version of history that begins in bloody sin, that passes through the fire of oppression, and that will you know end in the end of days with. Uh, punishment of the oppressor. That's, that's the commitment, and they're not going to be swayed from their focus. It's also fascinating. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. now that they, after they let um, this emperor um, execute Jewish law, this, right? reminds I mean, <laughs> this reminds me of when I taught first grade Sunday school in a conservative synagogue. And all the kids used to ask, is this really true? And my answer was always the same. It doesn't matter if it's true or false. It doesn't matter if it's made up or real. What matters is what you learn from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole idea of this whole thing. Yeah. But it's, it's, I think it is challenging uh, to, say, give a homily to a contemporary broadly, whatever you want to call it, centrist, liberal, whatever audience that's going to like take away the lesson because it's a, it's a story soaked in, in, in revenge. It's a story you know, soaked in suffering and the value of suffering. Um, it's, it's, martyr, it's martyrdom. It's martyrology. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.